Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I'm going to do a follow up to an interview I did with Todd Wood of the California podcast. I talked with him in December 15th, 2023, about the strange connections of mind controller William Joseph Bryan Jr. And he did have very strange connections. He was involved in the Boston Strangler uh, series of so-called serial rapist of Boston and murderer, who some believe wasn't the only person. His name was DeSalvo. But Bryan was friends with F. Lee Bailey, right? So F. Lee Bailey made his way through many cases, Hearst all the way up to O.J., right? So F. F. Lee Bailey is another show in itself. But Brian was there with him, and actually, according to Todd Wood, it was Bailey and Belli, so Melvin Belli, very famous West Coast tort lawyer, who was also friends with William Joseph Bryan Jr. and also was made or was the defense counsel for Jack Ruby, right? A very strange kind of case for him. Somebody who is a civil lawyer taking on a criminal case is very odd, especially in Texas. Um, but there's a lot of odd things about these guys, Bailey, Belli, and William Joseph Bryan Jr., MD. I've done a show on Melvin Belli with Mark Shaw, so you can check that out. I'll try to put a, a link to that show in the show notes. But Belli is also in Important and interesting because for some reason the whole event with the um the the killer in Ella it was 1968, right? Melvin Belli was getting these phone calls from um its killer, and it was in that movie about the the the, the Zodiac killer, right? So he was getting calls. And there are supposedly ties between Brian, possibly Zodiac, and Belli. So very, really strange connections all through the 60s. And, and like Todd said about William Joseph Bryan, he was uh, an advisor on the movie The Manchurian Candidates. Great movie, right? With Sinatra. And uh, it still holds, you know, holds up today. It's still a great film. So that's the Manchurian Candidate, and and Brian was a strange cat. So he wrote two books. Well, he wrote three, but one you'll see if you're watching this on Rockfin is the legal aspects of hypnosis. William J. Bryan Jr., M.D., cover with S.J. Van Pelt, who's another hypnotist in in the U.K., Melvin Belli with the Ford, and then Al Matthews, who was a criminal 
attorney in Los Angeles who was friends with it. If you see this cover, these eyes, there's actually a hypnotic test you can do with people who are highly suggestible, highly suggestible subjects is that they do this weird thing with their eyes that puts them into a kind of different state. And I'll, I think I'll just go through a whole another section of what is hypnosis, because I think it's important. And it really permeates post-World War II, even before that, actually, but post-World War II American history, much more so than the average person thinks, even alternate media, alternate history. Uh, it's under, under-researched and under-understood, if that's the case. But we're going to talk about actually stuff that happened in World War, prior to World War II, in... Um, at the, at the fall, really, of, as Hitler's rise to power. And I've done a show on Hitler with Hannison, right? So he's familiar with these kind of hypnotists. He knows Hannison. Hannison has taught him things. So he's almost, so that hypnotism and Hitler are connected. And William Joseph Bryan makes this connection in this book to Martin Vander Van Lube. I think it's Vanderlube or Van Lube, who was supposedly the guy who set the Reichstag on fire, right? It was impossible for Van, de, Van Lube to do it so, uh, by himself because the entirety of the Reichstag was just torched. I mean, it was it was burnt to a crisp. It wasn't like a fire broke out in one spot. So it indicates that there was pre-knowledge, and that's probably why Hannison was killed. Actually, if you listen to that show that I did with uh, power, politics, mapping, <clears throat> and uh, Hannison and his pre-knowledge and why he had to go, why he had to be killed. And not so many people were killed at Hitler's rise to power. Suspicious deaths. I mean, not just the Night of the Long Knives, his niece, Hannison, but there's a lot of very strange connections there. But really the theme of hip hypnotists, and you'll see that in, this, in what I'm going to read about uh, that and some other cases. But I'm going to start off just, I'm not reading through this whole book. I'm going to start off with a foreword by Belli, who was friends. And I think Todd Wood said, Bailey and Belli carried Brian's casket when he died in 1977. He died fairly young in Vegas as a kind of strange, drugged-out doctor who was all over the place and uh, could have been the Grand Chin Gone, right, as, as Todd Wood was talking about. So you could, I would highly recommend you listening to that discussion I had with Todd Wood in December 2023 about William Joseph Bryan Jr. And his whose provenance is kind of strange. There's very different stories. People say he was a relative of William Jennings Bryan, kind of the famous politician of the early 20th century. But the timing isn't right for him to be a grandson, like the generational distance in between. But I just read something in Bailey's book the interesting thing is both Bill I and Bailey had very interesting biographies written about them or that they wrote and included Brian stuff in there and uh, the Zodiac killer, really something else, which I think I'll probably go into in greater detail, right? The Zodiac supposedly was never solved. And there's some very interesting connections that some people have said, that the way to look at those cases is not at the perps, but at the victims and the connections between the victims. But that's another show. 
So here it is again, legal aspects of hypnosis, William Joseph Bryan, forward by Melvin Belli. And I think it's very interesting, friends of William Joseph Bryan. And there is connections between Bryan. I mean, similar outlooks, Belli, Bryan, and Bailey is womanizing. Like they were all womanizing. And, oh, yeah, the other connection between Brian is his inst uh, American Institute of Hypnosis connection to David Ferry, right? And in, I got Russo was like the most famous during the Garrison investigation, 68, really interesting timing. Like you have to do, 1968 was just a heady year, like it's something else. But during the Garrison investigation, it was Perry Russo, who was kind of like the, the chief, uh, witness for the prosecution right and there were other i mean this is a whole other subject because a lot of people don't understand the aspects of the, the garrison investigation there's hypnosis all through it not just fairy but russo said that fairy was into hypnosis and would hypnotize boys and rape them or do you know sexually abuse them which was what the allegations of brian there was actually a court case in 62 I can't remember when his court case was, but he was basically upbraided for doing the same thing to women and had said really, I mean, admitted to it. Like, I, I want to have sex with these women. Like, that's my goal. And, and Belli and Bailey, the same thing. Like, Belli was all over the place. And I think uh, Bailey started, F. Lee Bailey started like a skin mag. I forgot the name of it, but like, a whole nother story so these guys are characters in the kind of hefner hefner mo mode or model but yeah one of the jfk i mean there's a whole show on jfk and hypnosis much more so not covered it's not i mean it the not i i mean i've interviewed like 20 25 people about the jfk case they never bring up hypnosis it's just not something that they're interested about they don't think it's relevant and they're making a terrible mistake. So I'll do another show, JFK and Hypnosis, in the future. It's extraordinary. It's really incredible. And this isn't kind of like, like alternate history. It's just blowing the dust off of things that people overlook and don't, don't look into. So anyway, this will be, I think, episode nine for my D-Hypno program show on freeworld.fm. So you can check that out. And look, it's hopefully my older shows are on there. But I'm supposed to do two hours every night on Friday. So I just, sometimes I just don't have the, uh, the energy to uh, do two full hours on this. But I, I really shouldn't. I mean, I think there's a lot here. But anyway, getting back to this, there's just so many connections. It's it's really an unmined piece of American history. And this is part of it. William jo Joseph Bryant's connection just to the... Manchurian Candidate is remarkable in itself. And even the occultism in uh, the Manchurian Candidate, right? So lest we forget, Manchurian Candidate came out 63. Um, it was Frankenheimer was the director. Frankenheimer is where Robert F. Kennedy, not Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's running for president, RFK is in Los Angeles and is driven to the Ambassador Hotel by Frankenheimer, who's done a show on, on hypnotized assassins and 
RFK Jr. walks through the pantry after his announcement of the nomination, and there's Sirhan Sirhan. I've done a show on three shows on Sirhan Sirhan, the background, which can be added to and probably added to with some William Joseph Bryan uh, material. But anyway, Sirhan Sirhan doesn't remember anything. He's highly hypnotizable. They've had experts from East Coast schools look at that guy, and, and uh, he's really he's been tampered with. Allegedly by Dr. William Joseph Bryan, Jr., MD, who we're going to read his book right now. Again, Legal Aspects of Hypnosis, intro forward by Melvin Belli. In his two appearances at the Belli Seminars of 1961, Dr. William Bryan merely whetted the appetite of the legal fraternity for more information about his extraordinary specialty, hypnotism. In recent years, this science has been a subject of keen interest. Although it has recently become accepted as bona fide medical treatment, it has brought with it problems as well as benefits for the attorney. Thus, Dr. Bryan's book, with its unique emphasis on the legal aspects of hypnosis, is both timely and necessary. Hypnotism is not new. It dates back to the beginnings of recorded history. The medicine men of primitive society and the fabled voodoo practitioners are thought to have used some form of, some sort of of hypnotism to cure, frighten, or simply demonstrate their awesome powers. As recently as the 19th century, educated people looked upon hypnotism as little more than a weird, almost demonic type of entertainment. They paid admission to watch a lethargic fat man dance on a stage, believing himself to be thin and nimble as a result of hip a hypnotic trance. The hypnotist possessed an evil power. It was wizardry, uncanny and frightening. By the turn of the century, the courts had acknowledged the medical worth, if not the legal potential, of hypnosis. In 1902, it was recognized that the proper employment of a method influencing the nervous system as powerfully as hypnotism could be an effective means of relieving pain and curing disease. But the courts were not ready to accept hypnosis as a legal tool. In the 1905 decision, State v. Exum, the court quite baldly stated, quote, while this subject of hypnotism has received to some extent judicial recognition in the language of one of the briefs, the sources of its power and the extent of its influence are, in the main, unknown, and we must hesitate to enter on such a field in the search for evidence, unquote. Today, to be sure, theatrical hypnotism continues to draw large audiences, but clinical hypnotism is fast becoming recognized as an effective instrument for curing disease and as a valuable aid in the preparation of a lawsuit. Trial lawyers have long been troubled with the witness who has a faulty memory or is suffering from amnesia. It is often necessary to elicit facts from a person who may have been the only eyewitness or may himself have been involved in an accident. If this amnesia is not due to organic brain damage, a hypnotist can draw from him facts which have slipped beneath the level of his consciousness. In some remarkable way, the hypnotist gains access to the learning, memory, and sensory mechanisms of the brain. What is amazing is that his work leaves the patterns of the brain waves unchanged and undisturbed. Perhaps even more dramatic is the case of an individual who, following a trauma, suffers amnesia and regresses to a childhood state. A psychiatrist using hypnotism can often determine the psychological factors responsible for the regression and subsequently restore the patient to health. Hypnotism is a powerful instrument it can enable a person to perform beyond his normal cap capabilities. It provides him with a tremendous access to memories. It can be a stimulant or a depressant. It can profoundly influence the mental processes and even cause bodily reactions. 
such as bleeding, blisters, and swelling. Clearly, then, hypnosis must be judiciously employed. And it is here that the lawyer encounters some novel problems. What is the standard of care to be applied to a hypno hypnotist? Is he a professional when he entertains? Should he be held to an ordinary reasonable man standard of care, or should his conduct be judged by the care used by other hypnotists in the area? Does he or should he have a duty to warn? Is he responsible for post-hypnotic suggestion? If so, when does the statute of limitations begin to run? Can the subject, while he is under, be said to be suffering from a disability so as to toll the statute? These are puzzling questions. Dr. Bryan's book is a giant step in the direction toward answering them. There are more problems. Will the courts allow hypnotism as a means of investigation and discovery, a device for gathering evidence? Although the law grows slowly, the courts are beginning to acknowledge that hypnotism is a valid discovery device. In a Canadian case, the defendant made a full confession while under hypnosis and even volunteered where he had hidden the gun. Although the court would not admit the confession, it did allow the induction introduction of the gun into evidence. The law of the United States does not recognize hypnotism. It would be an illegal defense, and I cannot admit it. Such was the pronouncement of the court in People v. Ebanks, 1897. Assuming that a person can be hypnotized and directed to commit a crime against his natural inclination, and there is uncertainty as to whether this is possible, should not the fact be that he was hypnotized be a legal defense? Shouldn't hypnosis be grouped along with force and duress as defenses to criminal acts? Surely the actor is not at fault when his free will is stifled and he acts at the whim of another. Dr. Bryan points out that we have indeed come a long way from the timidity expressed in Ebanks. But he does not stop there. Starting with the, this decision of 1897, the author painstakingly traces the significant developments and changing attitudes of the law. He has wisely included in its entirety the California case of Cornell v. Superior Court. The court in this case declared that a defendant's right to counsel includes the right to be hypnotized for the purpose of calling forth facts which the defendant is unable to recall because of retrograde amnesia. This is a landmark decision, and Dr. Bryan has thoughtfully explored its implications. In addition, the author presents a novel idea for the use of hypnotism in the law. Bolstering the confidence of a witness can be a key element in the attorney's courtroom presentation. Dr. Bryan suggests that the lawyer preparing for trial calm down a witness frightened of cross-examination by having him hypnotized and using the device of post-hypnotic suggestion. Before judge or lawyer throws up his hands in horror of this considered procedure, first he should learn something of what hypnotism is and what it isn't. It is likely that this volume could become a standard starting point in the reference library of many lawyers. It contains, for example, an extensive discussion of the ethics involved in using hypnotism as an aid to investigation and in introducing evidence. It deals with the liability of stage hypnotists and statutory attempts to curb some of the more outstanding abuses, such as Great Britain's Hypnotism Act 1952. Moreover, the author has prudently included a chapter on the international aspects of hypnosis, as well as a discussion of such current topics of interest as brainwashing, truth serums, and lie detectors. Dr. Bryan has presented us with a book that bridges the gap between the medical and legal aspects of hypnosis. His prose is lively, his facts are documented, his conclusions are sound. In short, legal aspects of hypnosis is provocative and instructive. I highly recommend it. At least one should not remain like the judge I once tr 
I once tried a truth serum case before in a foreign jurisdiction. Because he couldn't understand the procedure and didn't take the trouble to listen and learn about it, he ridiculed it. This was obviously because of his, not its, shortcomings. And that is not justice nor an aid of the search for truth. In Dr. Bryan's book, we lawyers do have an opportunity further to search for truth and justice. Melvin M. Belli, LLB, San Francisco. <clears throat> lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, so there's an intro there, but I'm going to hop forward. Um, some of the chapter titles, Introduction to Legal. Hypnosis, laws regulating the practice of hypnosis, previous court decisions on hypnosis. So he has a section on that. Analysis of a psycho killer. So he goes through about 75 pages of that. But I'm going to pop up to uh, hypnosis and crime and go into crimes committed by hypnotic subjects and uh, read through that. And then I'll move up to uh, mass hypnotism and maybe some other stuff but yeah there's some interesting things here uh, particularly the heidelberg case the copenhagen case but uh he does go through kind of winning cases through hypnosis so using it in a legal proceeding um law enforcement using it things like that but uh we go up to the heidelberg case this will be the heidelberg case and this was published in 62 so um, it's right there, right? Such a right before Kennedy assassination, right before all these other things that came out. <clears throat> Part C crimes committed by hypnotic subjects, section one introduction. If, as we have stated, it is both impractical and practically impossible to use hypnosis as a vehicle for committing a crime on a hypnotized subject, it is even more unthinkable by the very nature of hypnosis that it would serve as a suitable medium for inducing subjects under hypnosis to commit crimes which would benefit the hypnotist. As Hammerschlag has stated, quote, in summary, we can thus establish that whoever understands the nature and effects of hypnosis must be convinced that it is a very unsuitable means for committing a crime. The tremendous majority of experts in the field of hypnosis fully agree that it is impossible to induce a subject, even by the most indirect means, to commit a crime either while under the state of hypnosis or due to a post-hypnotic suggestion. Unless, of course, the subject fully intended to commit such a crime to begin with. And in this case, the subject is to blame, not hypnosis. Some of the famous experts who have agreed with this viewpoint are Gilles de la Tourette, Pierre Genet, Benedict, and modern experts in the field such as Hedge, Boswell, Ray, Moss, Erickson, Butter, Stewart, Milliken, Sloan, Heron, Staples, Van Pelt, and the author, and many, many others. There's no doubt that subjects may be induced to commit all sorts of imaginary crimes in an experimental situation, and this has led to a great number of erroneous conclusions by a few psychologists who have spent their lives in the sterile atmosphere of the laboratory, but have a great grasp on their knowledge of clinical experience. These few misguided pseudoscientists who have never have been able to duplicate their laboratory experiments in the cold light 
of clinical behavior patterns, continue to publicize their ignorance by stuffing the journals full of nonsense regarding laboratory experiments designed to prove that the fable of Svengali actually exists. The fact that medical and dental hypnosis is absolutely sound and completely safe method for the treatment employed by thousands of physicians and dentists throughout the world seems to have escaped their attention. We shall therefore examine the extremely few cases which have entered the literature with a very critical eye in an effort to clarify once and for all the fact that hypnosis is not only a completely unwieldy and unsuitable method for committing crimes that is actually impossible to utilize in this regard. Because Charcot once considered hypnosis to be a state of hysteria and hence a mental disease, it occurred to a good many criminals of that era that if they could only prove that their actions were committed while in the hypnotic state, they might go unpublished, unpunished. Since punishment for committing the, an act while in a state of mental disease would be unjust, and hence through these means the criminal might seek to avoid prosecution for an offense of which he was guilty. The true facts are that since hypnosis is merely an extension of concentration of the mind and has nothing to do with mental illness in any way, except as an excellent treatment for it, criminals cannot utilize hypnosis to avoid prosecution by claiming that their actions are unpunishable due to mental illness. This does not mean, of course, that a person who is mentally ill cannot be hypnotized, but evidence of hypnosis is certainly not evidence of mental illness and vice versa. The two are mutually exclusive and entirely different phenomenon. <clears throat> there are two major cases in recent years which have involved the hypnotizing of a second party with the idea that this party would commit crimes under hypnosis or as a result of post-hypnotic suggestions which would benefit the hypnotist. These two cases are referred to in the literature as the Heidelberg case and the Copenhagen case, both of which have been extensively studied and both of which suggest that a type of brainwashing technique had been used rather than hypnosis. The techniques of brainwashing and powerization, a relatively new technique researched extensively by the present Russian government, will be discussed in a later chapter on hypnosis and law enforcement. Nevertheless, a brief description of the Heidelberg case and the Copenhagen case must be given at this time, if only to illustrate the rarity of occurrence, the length of time necessary to produce such behavior, and the evidence that these cases are examples of brainwashing, not hypnosis. The Heidelberg case has been well reported on in Hammerschlag's book, Hypnotism and Crime, and the Copenhagen case has been beautifully reported in its entirety in a special book devoted solely to this one case entitled Antisocial and Criminal Acts and Hypnosis. The latter is a case study by Paul J. Ryder, MD, who is a private lecturer on psychotherapy and psychosomatic medicine at the University of Copenhagen, and he spent a great deal of time amassing the necessary material for the complete review of the case. Section 2, the Heidelberg case. The Heidelberg case, the investigation of which was carried out by the late Dr. Ludwig Mayer, took more than 19 months of intensive study and over a thousand typewritten pages of testimony. The case is important because, in spite of the techniques of brainwashing used by the perpetrator of the crimes, even with all this and his extreme precautionary measures to avoid detection by the police, nevertheless, the victim never really lost her memory for the events which took place during the criminal, during, during which the criminal had a measure of control over the subject. The Heidelberg case, as reported by Dr. Mayer, illustrates quite conclusively that a long series of physical tortures were applied to the patient by suggesting many pains, illnesses, paralysis, and other afflictions. The victim in question admitted having been under the criminal's influence for extremely long periods of time and had, in fact, 
first met him many years previously, before she was married. As a matter of fact, her first encounter with hypnosis was with the criminal who called himself Dr. Bergen and who constantly and frequently attended her for a no great number of years. Many post-hypnotic suggestions have been given her by the doctor, including a number of nonsense syllables in imaginary words and numbers, which were connected with the carrying out of post-hypnotic suggestions. Thus, by repeating certain nonsense syllables, the victim would immediately enter or leave the hypnotic trance, would forget a particular experience, and would act in such other fashion as Dr. Bergen had suggested. A complete description of these suggestions, the words used, and the actions of the patients are included in Hammerschlag's book. Under Bergen's suggestion, whom she repeatedly referred to as Walter, she would continually submit to sexual advances both from Bergen and from anyone whom Bergen suggested. Some of the tortures which were used on the victim, a Miss E, are described as follows. As follows. Quote, In 1931, my thumb, index, and little finger of my left hand were so stiff I could not bend them anymore, no matter how hard I tried. After that, my whole hand went stiff, and I couldn't open it even with the greatest effort. Walter said it came from the muscles. It lasted for several months. However, after Walter had massaged my hand, I could open it. My fingernails had, in the meantime, become so long that through constant cramping together, they had actually cut into the palm of my hand. Walter bandaged my hand and put a splint on it. For a long time afterwards, my hand was so tired that I could barely use it, unquote. The victim's husband gave the following account, quote, For over 10 weeks, my wife's hand had cramps. It was impossible for her to bend her fingers. Then for two weeks, at another time, her hand was so firmly locked that the palm was all bruised as a result. That is why her hand was put in a splint. As soon as the bandage was loosened, her hand closed and could not be opened again. I tried with all my force, but would have broken off the fingers just before being able to open the hand. She then explained to me that the doctor had given her an injection and had in this way injured the tendon. I know exactly where all these pains came from, she related afterwards to the police. If Walter didn't like anything in my, my behavior, he said, you will get pains here or there, your blood will be full of matter, your lungs will rot. If I did not bring money sometimes because I did not get any from my parents or my husband, he said to me, they will have enough trouble with you. You will get so ill they will prefer to pay. After that, I always got pains which vanished only when he took them away by stroking me. Now I know that only because I had those dreadful pains did I suffer anxiety and carry out all his wishes. There was indi indication that Walter not only used hypnotic techniques, but also injections of drugs commonly used in brainwashing, as well as the physical torture methods which have been described above. Constantly and cunningly, he blocked her memory with every conceivable method at his disposal and spent hundreds, thousands of hours with her hammering in the reinforcement of his suggestions. The physical abuse, torture, extreme mental pressure, and injections of various drugs composed the, the methods which Walter used to obtain control over his victim. It is a tribute to the stability of the human mind that once these pressures were eliminated, an investigative treatment began by Dr. Mayer. The entire process was reversible. The woman was able to remember everything that had happened, not only and not only become well as a result of this treatment, but testify against the criminal who brainwashed her. In various ways, Walter attempted to force her to do away with her husband through the use of a gun, poison, and by involving him in auto accidents. It is interesting to note that despite numerable attempts on the part of the hypnotist to cause the victim to murder her husband, she would always fall short of the goal, 
although she had indeed caused him a good deal of distress. At one time, he also endeavored to make the victim commit suicide, but in spite of the control which he had over her, she was able to foil this attempt by failing to purchase the tablets which he had instructed her to take. Another test of his control which failed was when he had suggested to her that she would leap from a moving train, even though she had accepted the suggestion that she was hopelessly ill and would die anyway. She nevertheless did not leap from the moving train in order to avoid the painful death which Walter, Walter had predicted for her. This shows that even with the strongest amount of brainwashing, which cannot be compared to the restful relaxation of medical hypnosis, there's apparently a mental safeguard somewhere deep within the human subconscious, which refuses to blindly obey the orders of the instigator. When it had been suggested that she would drown herself in the Rhine, she did not carry out the suggestion, her rationalization being that her housekeeper followed her to the water and saved her. One might almost suspect here that Mrs. E's subconscious may have been may have desired outside sexual contact and injury as a means to punish herself from some fancied guilt feeling she possessed, but it did not desire her demise, as this would halt the cycle of self-punishment. In the summing up of the case, Hammerschlag states, quote, if we ask ourselves what constitutes the uniqueness of this case, three facts may be singled out which distinguish it essentially from other cases. The extraordinary... It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Suggestibility of Mrs. E, the u- unusual duration of the suggestive influence and the remarkable cunning of the perpetrator. Only by the coincidence of these three conditions, to which we should certainly add the incomprehensible patience of Mrs. E's husband and relatives, more psychopathological disturbances here perhaps, the author, was it... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Possible for the crime in question to begin and to be continued for years and years. The uniqueness consisted in the fact that these three conditions not only coincided, but were also satisfied by an exceptional degree. Such an accumulation of favorable conditions, we may justify, justly assume, occurs only very rarely. If, in spite of this, the crime could be elucidated and the culprit convicted, it shows even more convincingly the truth of our assertion that hypnosis and the victim's loss of memory, which is aimed at, cannot shield the perpetrator from discovery and conviction. 
Hammerschlag goes on to say, certainly the deepening of a hypnotic state to the point of obliterating or excluding the core of the personality, even if only temporary, is a rare phenomenon. This is obviously not hypnosis to begin with, but brainwashing. The danger of using hypnosis for criminal purposes diminishes to the extent that amnesia produced by suggestion offers no protect protection from exposure. This also brings forth another interesting fact and point of view, which is, is that if amnesia can be produced in a subject through hypnosis and intensified through extensive brainwashing, and yet under the proper hypnotic medical treatment, every bit of this memory can be brought back, it then stands to reason that naturally occurring amnesia should respond equally well, if not better, to proper hypnotherapy. Such has proved to be the case and is therefore one of the really legitimate methods of utilizing hypnosis in the legal profession. It is important, therefore, that we understand the various applications of hypnotic phenomena in insisting a witness to regain his memory, which has been temporarily blocked by retrograde amnesia. These final paragraphs by Hammerschlag conclude the history of the Heidelberg case. In January 1935, a Miss E reported one day that she'd been addressed by a member of the criminal police who demanded various items of information. The assumption that this man was an unauthorized person was very soon confirmed. Mrs. E was able to identify this supposed official as a friend of Walter, who had been introduced to her by the name of Alfred. It was then possible under hypnosis to relieve, relieve the memory block which the culprit had placed around his accomplice and his activity. It emerged that Walter had given Miss E the post-hypnotic instruction to comply unconditionally, and without any will of her own, with Alfred's wish wishes, as soon as he would utter the word philophy. Furthermore, it appeared that Walter and his friend had laid down a precise plan for this two-sided relationship in case their deeds should lead to investigation by the police. In accordance with this plan, Alfred approached Mrs. E in the manner described, placed her in a hypnotic state by uttering the word philophy, and then gave her instructions which were to lead to confusion and difficulties in any criminal examination of Walter. After every instruction of this kind, Alfred suggested to her complete loss of memory in relation to their encounter, and to do the commands he had given her. In this way, it becomes clear why Mrs. E, and the investigation lasting many months, was never able to recollect anything about the accomplice and his influence until the amnesia which covered her complex situation was removed, and her individual memory images could once again begin to emerge with consciousness in connection with the word philophy. From this moment, it was relatively easy to deal with the interventions of the accomplice, but many months of examination were still left necessary before success was finally achieved in tracing the scope of his activity, elucidating it, and bringing about his arrest. After a trial lasting three weeks in June 1936, Walter was found guilty and sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. Albert drew a four-year sentence. Dr. Mayer's preliminary work in the case had taken up nearly two years. The interesting descriptions of the final aspects of this case are that actually the case was broken by positive medical hypnotherapy, even while the extensive brainwashing was continued by Walter's accomplice. This case would tend to prove that, given the proper treatment, most cases of our soldiers who suffered the tortures of brainwashing during the Korean conflict or World War II could be completely cured through the use of hypnotherapy. Such treatment should therefore be immediately instituted in the mental wards of our veterans' hospitals. Interesting. 
This again shows the tremendous reserve of mind power available to the individual and the futility of utilizing hypnosis in any form for criminal purposes. It simply doesn't work. Section three, the Copenhagen case. Dr. Reeder's description of the Copenhagen case, a classic work in a study of criminal acts and hypnosis, includes an introduction by Mr. Eric Beck, a barrister who appeared for the Crown in the case of the Crown versus Mr. Paul H. in the Copenhagen, Copenhagen Central Criminal Court in 1954. The famous Copenhagen case, which resulted in life imprisonment for both the accused, the stiffest penalty the Copenhagen Central Criminal Court is empowered to give, began in the case of the Crown versus Paul H., a toolmaker married age 31. Paul H. was accused of robbery with violence, having a, a loaded pistol forced the counter clerk in a branch bank of the Copenhagen suburb to hand over approximately $3,000. Further, he was charged with attempted robbery with violence and manslaughter for his actions on March 29, 1951, during which time he tried by means of his pistol to force one of the counter clerks and then the bank manager of a bank in Norabro, Copenhagen, into delivering him the cash present, and when they failed to comply, he had killed both men. In the same case, one BSN, an unskilled laborer, age 39, stood accused of robbery, attempted robbery, and manslaughter, of having instigated planned crimes committed by Paul H., and having received fully or in part the money stolen from H. from the bank. Sentence of imprisonment for life was asked for both of the accused. Mr. H., an identical twin, the other twin is apparently kept out for trouble, first got into trouble during the war when he was associated with various Nazi collaborationist organizations operating in Denmark, including the Hypocorps. He was arrested, tried, and sentenced in September 1946 to 14 years imprisonment, but was released on probation in October of 1949. While in prison for treason, he met up with Mr. N, who had a number of previous arrests and convictions for attempted robbery, collaboration, blackmail, and other undesirable illegal activities. The two men first worked together in a workshop, and then, under N's apparent insistence, they were permitted to room together in the same cell in order to carry on N's experiments in, quote, psychical research, unquote. These experiments apparently had as their motive a conditional training of H by N, whereby after considerable months of daily brainwashing, N was able to enter H's personality to the point that a new superego was created in the mind of H to which H apparently felt a need for complete obedience. And sensing the need of H for acceptance, security, and submissiveness to, to omnipotence fostered the idea in him that his prison sentence would be easy to bear because it was part of a large and greater plan of a deity, which would he soon call on H directly to perform certain very important tasks, namely the leadership of the world. Testing him in prison, therefore, was only a method of determining the hardness and fastness of H's character, and since it was the will of God that he should be from there, a great deal of guilt was no doubt expiated, expiated from H regarding his treasonous behavior during the war. This apparently bound him all the more to N, so that when N felt that his brainwashing techniques had finally become sufficient to take control, he allowed H to hallucinate a guardian spirit which he called X, and to which H owed complete obedience. 
The fact was impressed upon H by repeated brainwashing that this guardian spirit would never fail H at any time, and that in order to experience supreme peace of mind and enjoy the nirvana-like state, each had only to completely obey the orders of X. H soon largely concerned himself only with the tasks which were assigned to him by the guardian spirit, and constant suggestions were given by N that all ties between himself and the temporal world should be broken. Comparing himself with Joan of Arc and other saints, he soon became firmly convinced that he had been given the task by X of uniting the Scandinavian countries under one rule, which was to be the prelude of salvation for all mankind. After the two were released from Horson's prison, N maintained his control over H through the guardian spirit X, and in order to remove H from the influence of his parents, N continued his brainwashing experiments with H, insisting that the guardian spirit X had decreed that H should be married. He not only went along with this, following out the guardian spirit's directions to the letter, he had also even consented and arranged sexual intercourse between his bride-to-be and N, 10 days before the wedding because the guardian spirit X had ordered it done. An account of this amazing incident is excerpted from Dr. Reader's book and reads as follows, quote, X demanded that H should order his future wife to have intercourse with N under the threat of breaking off their relationship if he refused. She refused. Presumably N's intention with this strange affair beside extra pleasure for himself and the satisfaction of his uninhibited polygamous tendencies was to increase his powers even more over H and his future wife. The episode was reproduced in a re regressive dramatization in which, having taken all the usual precautionary measures, I, Dr. Reader, suggested to H that he relieve that evening in every detail when he was required to introduce H's future wife to have intercourse with him. H, <clears throat> we are sitting at the coffee table. We have coffee cakes and liqueurs and are almost finished. They asked me to go and play something on the piano. I don't mind playing something for them. It helps to pass the time. Bente and Tite, N's wife, are talking housekeeping. After all, that is their job. N and I go into the next room. We often used to do that after seeing the two girls were happy on their own. There's another room next door where N and I can go and talk on our own. It is there my guardian spirit usually comes and talks to me. N says that X has a task for me. I get uncomfortable at the thought because I know that the tasks he sets me are usually unpleasant. He expects a lot of me. N tells me to sit in the chair. I do as he says. It is an easy chair. There are two easy chairs and a sofa in the room. He tells me to relax. He puts his hand on my forehead. He gives me magnetic strokings. Then he says that X has told him to see it to it that he has intercourse with Bente. I feel completely paralyzed over my whole body. My whole body trembles. He tells me to keep quite calm. It does not concern me at all. I have a mission which I must fulfill. It is certainly absolutely necessary that I learn how to control others. I can see that the man is right in what he asks. He says it he says it is my body which resists. I must learn to control my body. He will help me, and he brings me into a state where I no longer belong to this world. He tells me I'm sinking down deeper and deeper. He repeats this several times. Then he tells me to say I agree. I know he is right. It must be so. Even though I cannot bear the thought, I must keep my thoughts off the subject. It is hard. By now, H is obviously in very strong effect. I ask him, how do you feel? H, I am desperate. He breathes quickly, pulse 110. It can't be right, but I know it is right. I know everything that has happened before has had to happen. 
so that we can get as far as we have up to now. I know that my guardian spirit will not fail me. I shall have to do it. Trembling voice, contorted expression. Everything is so unimportant now. I can see it is the right thing to do. I must go through with it. I have my mission, which I must fulfill. I cannot let Bente interfere with that. N says the same. It is right. It cannot be done. In that case, I would only be a pawn. It won't be. He is standing at the table close to me. He puts his hands on my forehead. He strokes my temples and goes to the back of my neck, my arms, and says he will tell me about the whole thing is to be arranged. He says I will see to it that when I leave, Bente goes with me and he himself will accompany us. So it basically kind of tells the whole story. It goes through the whole thing. I mean, it basically, this guy got set up to this, but um, Brian then goes on. <clears throat> it must be realized, of course, the techniques of hypnosis and a great deal of other mental and physical pressures were brought to bear on H for many months, long before this test of influence was carried out. This would seem to be seem to indicate that even by utilizing brainwashing, a number of conditions must be present if the control of an individual's mind is to be attained to such a degree. First, the individual must be in constant contact with the hypnotizer. Secondly, the individual must have a deep-seated psychiatric need, which the hypnotizer recognizes and supplies at regular intervals. Thirdly, the psychic relationship between the hypnotizer and the hypnotized must be such that a great deal of physical and mental abuse and torture is experienced by the subject as part of this relationship and is in fact endured by the subject as a means to attain self-control, as well as a means of identification of himself with a deity of omnipotent power. Besides all these things, a complete personality change in the subject must occur in which a new superego is formed, to which the subject gives complete allegiance, and the old pattern of morality is crushed. It is only in this very complex and difficult manner that an antisocial acts can be said to be committed through the use of hypnotic techniques. As I've said before, this is brainwashing, not hypnosis, and it is important to differentiate it from medical hypnosis hypnosis practiced in our offices. So this kind of story goes on and on. It's very detailed. It goes in. There's other cases as well. Um, I'll put a link to the book so you can read it, but I want to get to the mass hypnosis and kind of the stories about Vander Lubb who um, supposedly burned down the Reichstag, but uh, some pretty, pretty questionable things about that, whether that actually happened. Let's see. Hypnosis and law enforcement. Interrogating criminals with hypnosis is on here. Let's see. Powerization. I've never heard the, the word powerization until I read this. <clears throat> International law and hypnosis. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's see. Some stuff on Russian things. 
Let's get to mass hypnosis. Use of hypnosis in penal institution, mass hypnotism, chapter 10. The fact that mass hypnotism exists and is actually not difficult to perform is one of the frightening aspects in the battle for men's minds. As greater and greater audiences have reached are reached through all the senses, first great numbers of people were reached only through the ears, radio, now ever numbers of people are reached by both sight and sound, television. We've become increasingly aware that an entire nation may be stirred up in a matter of hours by means of mass hypnotic techniques. It is common knowledge to every dictator that in order to successfully wage a war against any country or group of people, it's first necessary to stir up a righteous indignation among one's own people so that the war is planned can be defended on moral grounds. In order to stir up this righteous indignation, it is necessary to plan certain, plan certain events in order to have an excuse for one's own behavior. Hitler's excuse for invading Czechoslovakia was that more Lebensraum was needed for the German people. His excuse first for invading Poland was that the Poles had attacked him first, a ridiculous assertion with a, which a reasoning individual would immediately reject. But as it has often been stated before, the emotion and imagination invariably triumph over reason and willpower. It was only necessary for Hitler to employ the techniques of mass hypnotism, repeating the hypnotic chant, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil until the idea of victory was so stamped on the German brain that the consequences of their act seemed of little importance and simply faded away in the distance, as other thoughts do when we are acting under a state of mass hypnotism. Enormous crowds of people can be swept into such a feverish pitch of emotion that any action contrary to the action advocated by the leader is immediately trampled underfoot, and reason is completely lost. Now, if this happens to be a force for good, such as the evangelical meetings held by Billy Graham and others, direct positive suggestions are accepted by thousands of those attending. Witnesses for Christ are obtained, and thousands are influenced in a most compelling way to change their lives and accomplish the work of the Lord. However, the force of mass hypnotism and mass suggestion is a double-edged sword, which has been used by unscrupulous men to lead thousands of people into chaos and destruction which, after it occurs, releases them from the trance-like state under which they have been operating and allows them to wonder in disbelief at their own actions. Such techniques have been used to invite riots in Japan, form lynch mobs in Alabama, cause strife in the Belgian Congo, and promote unrest elsewhere in the face of the earth. They involve the use of hypnotic techniques to kindle the fire of an emotion which a group of people have in common and then turn that emotion into a specific action desired by the leader of the group. The techniques of mass control on human behavior are also the techniques of the politician in winning elections. In spite of his wealthy family background, which separated him from the masses, and in spite of his physical affliction, which was never allowed to interfere with his duty to his country, one of the master politicians of this era was elected president of the United States four times, primarily because he always managed to identify himself with the common man in the street. And what was even more important, the man in the street identified himself with the president. It was this same characteristic that enabled Mr. Truman to win his election against Dewey when his party was split three ways and against such imaginable odds that every single political observer had predicted that he had absolutely no chance of winning. The fact that Americans like to identify themselves with the righteous underdog made Truman's candidacy a natural. The feeling of working one's way up to a position of trust is also a feeling which endears itself to the American people, and Eisenhower's record as a war hero, plus 
this previous factor were in a large way responsible for his election to office. Both Dewey and Stevenson's identification with a higher intellectual set presented them with obstacles which were too difficult to overcome when election day arrived. Kennedy, on the other hand, became an underdog because of his religion and hence the large anti-Catholic protest vote that was expected by many political observers didn't materialize. The fact that the French people wished to identify themselves with the symbol of the glory of France of past days when the symbol of the government of France was unshakable and eminently powerful throughout the world certainly led to the rallying of Frenchmen behind Charles de Gaulle, who, with his powerful and majestic manner, represents everything the Frenchman has learned to love in his wonderful country. Indeed, the election of de Gaulle and the installation of a new, more stable constitution has led the French into a greater prosperity and world respect than they had previously known during the past 20 years. Perhaps this is an example of the fact that when we believe in anything, it tends to be realized, and the stronger the belief, the more it tends to be realized. Ways seem to suggest themselves by which facts can be realized. When caught up in the spirit of improving the stability of the government of France, de Gaulle found thousands of supporters who had previously been merely, merely quibbling among themselves. Politics in other countries can also be examined on the basis of their political figures and the mass hypnotic effect they exert upon the people. The origin of the particular peoples in their early training has a great deal to do with the acceptance of any political system later on. The communists have recognized this factor only too well. For this reason, to direct their greatest efforts in the field of propaganda toward the children, who, as it has been stated before, are in a chronic state of hypnosis. Hence, they are much more susceptible to suggestions than older persons who have already formulated their personality characteristics and traits. Everyone knows you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It is further axiomatic that a satisfied people contain a certain inertia which mitigates against any change and an unhappy, disillusioned, and de depressed people are looking for a new security in the suggestions of the first shrewd, cunning politician who enters the scene. This certainly explains the rapid formation of a great difference between East German and West German people in their ideologies following the last world war. And it also explains why Soviet Russia has felt the necessity of turning over an even greater percentage of its production to consumer goods in order to satisfy the people who must live under its system. A restless people are revolutionary minded, whether they may believe it or not. It certainly is vitally important that the foreign policy of the United States be formed and directed and dispensed through techniques of indirect positive suggestion, which will do a great deal towards enhancing its acceptance in the far corners of the earth. Mass hypnotism in the field of advertising has grown to such gigantic proportions that nearly all the children of the United States are able to quote the advertisements on television before they can learn their lessons in school. The reason is obvious. A great deal more time and money has been spent in researching the correct methods of getting the advertiser's message to the public than has been spent in research on getting the educational message to the children. The armed services forced to train large numbers of men with a great deal of speed have developed perhaps the best and most practical solutions or schools of any in the country and paradoxically enough, the schools of higher learning, such as those of medicine, law, and other professions have the poorest training programs due to the tremendous lack of research in the method of specialized training and also the lack of utilization in audiovisual aids and other hypnotic techniques which help to concentrate the mind. The companies in the United States which enjoy the most wealth are those companies which have created an absolute demand for their product 
in the minds of the American people. This has certainly been done by mass suggestion. The basic longing for security has caused insurance companies to become one of the most profitable undertakings in this country. Even the automobile, which has long been regarded as merely an instrument of transportation, is sold more on the basis of prestige than on the basis of utility. And prestige is but another way of symbolizing security. Finally, the use of mass hypnotism on the public regarding the medical profession at large could certainly be used to advance the cause of hypnosis itself. Let us hope that those of you who have read this volume to the end have noted that very few important facts have been repeated over and over again purposefully with the intent to impress them on your mind because they are good facts, true facts, and deserve attention of the medical, dental, and legal professions. And they are medical and dental hypnosis is safe. There are definite uses and abuses of hypnosis in the legal professions. There are times when a medical hypnotist can be of inestimable value. The use of hypnosis in penal institution, penal institutions and the use of mass hypnotism in politics and war should be given a great deal of research and needs to be vigorously, vigorously to be explored. The new techniques of psychological warfare developed by the Russians, which include brainwashing and powerization, should be carefully researched by our own government in order to develop adequate defenses against them. Everything possible should be done to instill confidence in the minds of the general public regarding the professional advice they receive from their physician, dentist, lawyer, and others regarding the use of hypnosis. Harbingers of doom and prophets illustrating the dangers of hypnosis, hypnosis should constantly be reminded of the millions of churches throughout the world whose parish parishioners derive from concentrating their minds in prayer, the greatest force existing within the human race, the love residing, residing in their own souls. So that's kind of the end of the book. Let me go back to this Martin Vanderlove section. <clears throat> says the description shows with terrifying clarity what way the accused evolved in such cases can be prepared for their role this was apparently the method of torture used to extract a confession from vanderlube who confessed he had sent the giant building of the reichstag on fire in february 1933 within a period of 15 minutes and without any help although no one seriously believed such a confession since it would have been a physical impossibility. Nevertheless, he stuck doggedly to his confession, exhibiting a behavior pattern at the time of trial, which indicated clearly he had been subjected to a type of brainwashing process. H.B. Gisevius gives a description of Vanderlub during the trial, quote, An indefinable creature cowered before us, stooping deeply and so crouched up in himself that his head literally hung between his legs. His hair was disheveled over his face, and he was a pale as a corpse, stiff and stubborn. At the most, a bewildered smile now and then passed over his expressionless face, but nothing more than this. This most puzzling one among all the accused allowed himself to be led willingly here and there. He got up when the president of the court called him, and occasionally he stammered out a yes or no, but that was all. Others could address him, but he would not answer. One could push him, he would not stir. Nothing moved him, and he did not respond to anything else. Obviously, Vanderlub was in a deep trance at the time of the hearing, and he maintained such deep concentration on what had been suggested to him that he responded to no outside stimuli. The report goes on to describe his reaction at the announcement of the death sentence. Lub stands there apathetically and hears the sentence and the evidence, but he does not betray any 
movement that someone here is going to his death, much less himself. It seems if he were already in a world beyond, as if it was simply his outer hole, which was listening to those empty formulae, which the high lawyers announced to confirm that he had long since departed from his earthly existence. Obviously, directors of the Third Reich, Hitler and his friends, were in some way able to bring about a complete erasure from Van Lubb's memory of all recollections regarding the many persons who helped him light the flames, which signaled the birth of an era of ruthlessness in Germany, which has seldom been duplicated anywhere else in the world. This was done by the most massive of suggestions planted in the suitable soil of the mind, which had been cultivated by means of exhausting the accused by brainwashing him until his consciousness was excluded, then hammering into him the desired content. So he was under mind control. Vander Love, that's what they're saying. That's what he says. And then there's an article about Brian here. It's pretty interesting. Anyway, I'm at the hour. Thank you for listening. That was uh, episode eight or nine in the D-Hypno program titled Dr. William Joseph Bryan Jr. Hypnosism, Crime, and Mass Hypnosis. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.